a Podcast One production. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Today we're talking about the use, the alleged use of chemical weapons in Syria by the Assad regime. There have been headlines this week across the world that Trump um, has blamed um, a big chemical attack on Iran, Syria and Russia, although the evidence is yet to suggest this even happened. Keith, this is not the first time that Assad regime, um, the, the president of Syria, has been accused of using chemical weapons. We've seen the awful footage on the news flashed around the world last few years. Well, um, they say anybody who understands Syria must be confused. You've got so many different issues running around inside Syria. So in terms of the actual use of gas warfare, um, from a military point of view, there's some doubt as to whether it's even of much use. So you've got to wonder why you'd bother to use it. In the case of Assad, um, he uh, was involved allegedly in the use of gas warfare a few years ago during the time of the uh, Barack Obama presidency. So Barack Obama, so you've got people in the United States pushing the Americans to get more heavily involved in Syria. Obama said, you know, the invasion of Iraq was stupid, therefore he wasn't going to get bogged down in Syria. And, so, and then they asked, what would be the red line for you in terms of forcing you to get involved? And he said, for me, the red line would be the use of gas warfare. A year later, we had the use of gas warfare. And suddenly the pressure builds up on Obama then to send troops into Syria. Putin saved him. Putin got the Assad regime to be agreed to agree to the Chemical Warfare Treaty, which Australia joined a quarter of a century ago, and the United States. So he then joins that treaty, then says, I have now got rid of all my chemical weapons. That gets Obama. This off. is Assad saying that. This is Assad. And Putin saved Obama from having to get involved in Syria. And so Obama was very grateful to Putin, although he didn't necessarily make that public at the time. Then during the election campaign in 2016, um, Donald Trump, in this remarkable victory that he pulled off, um, where we went from zero to hero for some people within three months, remarkable success. One of the things that he kept campaigning on was to say, look, America should not get involved in Syria and we should and we should get out of it, all forms of involvement in Syria and also to get out of Iraq. This is not our war. That was an error by the Bush administration perpetuated by Barack Obama. Mrs Clinton, of course, by contrast, was promising greater American involvement in that region. So I think a combat-weary number of American voters figured, yep, he's right, let's get out of Syria, let's get out of Iraq. We've lost so much blood and treasure. It really, particularly in Iraq, really hasn't done much good. So Trump came to office with a promise not to get more heavily involved in Syria, indeed, if anything, to get out. Last year, he said, yes, we're going to get out of our involvement in Syria. And uh, in doing so, shortly thereafter, we get a gas warfare attack. And suddenly CNN, all the liberal media suddenly start saying, and Fox, started saying the Americans have got to get involved back in Syria. Um, there is a broader issue, either getting involved then or if he's going to get involved as we speak. This is the discussion that's going on at this very moment in the White House. Second use of gas warfare, apparently. My problem is to say, well, 
what does Assad expect to get out of this? He doesn't need to use gas. He's, he's pretty well won that struggle in this little suburb of Ghouta, which is part of um, Damascus. He doesn't really need to use gas weapons. Why would he therefore do so, knowing that he's going to inflame American um, viewpoints? For me, one of the bigger issues, which the Americans don't spend their time examining, is that they have whipped up this campaign against Assad, but who follows him? Who's going to follow Assad? If they are successful in removing him, and I don't think they will, but if they were, who's going to replace him? Look at the mess that we got in 2003. Saddam Hussein was convinced that the Americans would never be stupid enough to invade Iraq because he said the country will fall apart. Therefore, my position is secure. You get George Bush coming along and he is stupid enough, along with Blair and Howard, right? They do invade Iraq. They get rid of Saddam Hussein and the country falls into chaos, um, which then gives rise to the Islamic State in Iraq, which then spills over into Syria. So that's a separate struggle that's going on in Syria because of the Islamic State. So I guess a concern that I've had all the way along is the Americans never really knew what they wanted to achieve in Syria. Obama's point of view is we don't want to get involved in Syria. Trump on the election campaign was also saying we're not going to get involved in Syria. Um, Now, if in fact they are going to, looking at the rhetoric we've just had in the last few hours, being very critical of that animal Assad um, and wanting to get rid of him, well, what are you going to do? Who are you going to replace him with? The next in line is his brother. And it's interesting that his brother was not appointed by his father, because even the father was worried about the brother. So instead, he he figured, look, um, instead of going for um, um, this other son, um, I'll go for this the one that we've currently got, Basha al-Assad, uh, who was at that time in London training to be an ophthalmologist and he's married to a woman who's an international banker. So he can fix up your eyes and she can fix you up with a loan. So the father brought them, you know, said, you're going to be the next leader because he was very worried about his this other son wanting to take over. Because he's crazy? Because he's got yeah. no charisma? Oh, no, no, he's crazy. I think he's crazy. Well, his father thinks he's crazy. Uh, so he figured that with this ophthalmologist trained in London, he might be a more balanced sort of leader. And all you've got to do is, in those days, keep Syria on this stable basis of operating. But then, of course, Syria gets caught up in this so-called Arab Spring, and it's been downhill ever since. Okay, so let's talk about chemical weapons again. So um, at the moment, that was the reason that Trump reacted so vehemently last year, um, those horrific pictures of babies. I think most people would would remember that those, those twins, the dad mm. crying, holding uh, twins that had died. I mean, they were really graphic, the most extremely graphic images, hence why there was such an outcry to do something. I don't Look, I don't want to be dismissive, but we have had babies killed for seven years on a daily basis, Kate, and and the uh, media in the West only get involved if it's chemical warfare. Your fact is that there are, the babies are be, and children are being killed every day for seven years. It's one of the worst wars currently underway at the moment anywhere in the world. So why do does the media care only about chemical warfare? Well, good question. Um, it's not clear to me why they should just be so focused on chemical warfare. It's a horrendous weapon. It is banned um, in uh, in international law, um, but it's not a consistent media coverage. And so I, I don't understand why the media should get so worried about uh, these people being killed there rather than the, the children being killed daily for seven years. 
throughout Syria. And of course, as you know, we've also had this terrible exodus of Syrians who walked from Damascus to Berlin, 900,000. And 11 million displaced in general. Exactly. So, okay, so chemical warfare in general, there is a reason why all the world signed a treaty in which they would not use chemical warfare. Yeah. Why? Well, because... um, The military themselves have not been supporters of chemical warfare. It's got an interesting history. It goes back to the time of World War I, um, when Fritz Haber, um, who who actually won the the Nobel Prize for Chemistry, uh, he invented ways of dyeing fabric. So looking at you and your dark fabric, Fritz Haber invented the mechanism to dye that fabric. And in World War I, when Germany was at war, being a patriotic German, he said, look, the noxious fumes that the fabric dyes give off could become a weapon. So he then invented modern gas warfare. The British were very quick to respond, and so we, we get the trench warfare and the use of gas warfare on the Western Front. The military were never that enthusiastic about it after it had been used for a few times. The weather is so fickle, right? With gas warfare, you're spreading this, uh, if you like, this poison, either um, something which is going to attack the, the respiratory system and later on it's the nervous system. The Germans ironically also invented insecticide. Um, that was in the 30s. But the problem is that you can never rely on the wind. In a building like this, it would be very good to use gas warfare because you'd put it through the air conditioning system and you'd kill everybody in the building but no one outside on the street. But you would be able to wipe out everyone in the building. On a battlefield, the wind blows gas back and forth. In fact, some of the casualties of the first use of British gas warfare are actually Australian soldiers. The wind turned and blew the gas back into the Allied lines, killing Australians. So the military, it's interesting, in the 1920s, when the first move began against gas warfare, uh, it was actually the military who was supporting the banning of it. And if you've ever, well, you wouldn't have done, but if you've ever had to wear a gas suit, uh, which is very heavy plastic, uh, rubbery stuff, um, and you sweat terribly when you're inside it, it's not a comfortable way to fight a battle. Mm. And so that's one of the reasons why Australia was so involved in negotiating this most more recent treaty from a quarter of a century ago. Because if we have to use that in our tropical region, you can only wear those suits for a few minutes at any one time. It's just so unpleasant because you're sweating so profusely wearing those suits. Also another driver for the banning of gas warfare a quarter of a century ago was the chemical industry. So the chemical industry realised that this is very bad for their overall profile and so the chemical industry got on side as well and worked with the Australian government. At that time, I was on a committee in Canberra and I was impressed with the number of chemical experts from the industry who came along and said, this is how you would carry out inspections. And these techniques are being used as we speak in Syria to check on what is being used, also being used, of course, in England to check on this suspicious um, assault on the, the, the ex-Russian spy and his daughter. But these were techniques partly pioneered here in Australia, working with the chemical industry. So how many countries still have chemical weapons? Well, theoretically, it's, it's uh, very few countries who would still have it. There, there, there's been a general agreement to ban chemical weapons. Now, the suspicion is that well, as you, as you join the treaty, you have to declare what you've got and then you have to work towards getting rid of them. 
Um, very worryingly, the Soviets were burying their stuff in the Arctic Circle. That's, but that's another story. Oh, and the Americans were paying in the end to help the Russians dispose of their own wretched weapons. Um, this is in the, you know, the post-Cold War era. Um, so theoretically, no country which is governed by the treaty should have chemical weapons, which means, therefore, that Putin is getting Obama out of the corner on the use of nuclear, or the use of chemical weapons in Syria. Um, when Syria signed up to that treaty a few years ago, they would have had to have declared all of their chemical weapons and then started to get rid of it. So if, in fact, this is their chemical weapons, they are in violation of their treaty. On top of everything else, they're in violation of the treaty. But do we are we surprised by that? If it is their chemical weapons? When you talk to the military, they're not in favour of chemical weapons. Um, and so I'm, I'm, that's why I'm a little wary about why would Assad at the moment want to use chemical weapons? He's, this is a man who's got three conflicts ticking away in his own country. Uh, Syria that he inherited from his father no longer exists. People have fled the country. There's been chaos in the country. As we speak, um, we have three conflicts underway in that country. This is Global Truth with Dr Keith Souter. We're talking today about the use of chemical warfare in Syria. Uh, it's made headlines this week as Donald Trump, US president, has condemned the use of, alleged use, we better say, of these chemical weapons and blamed Russia, Iran and Syria for using it on civilians, another couple of hundred dead, allegedly. Keith, it's important mm. we use that word. Um, so if these chemical weapons have been used, then the Russians are being accused of supplying the weapons. I mean, we just saw a chemical attack on Britain, but we were just talking a few minutes ago about how Putin got Assad, who is the president of Syria, to sign the mm. anti um chemical weapon warfare yeah. treaty, saying yeah. that they wouldn't use that on their civilians. But So why would Putin give them... Well, well, no, that's a separate allegation. There are two allegations floating around, or at least two. One is that gas warfare has been used in the suburb of Damascus called Ghouta, or east of Damascus called Ghouta. The uh, second allegation is that the Russians supplied the material. It may well be it could be home-produced by Syria. So it doesn't necessarily have to come from Russia because Russia would say, well, we, we've got rid of our own right. gas warfare. right. Okay, so let's talk now about this um, importance of the, using the word alleged in this case because you believe this might not even be the case, that this could be made up. Well, that's right, because I think the situation in Syria is just so confused. You know, I keep talking about these three conflicts. I really ought to perhaps make some sense of mm. that. One conflict is running down the um, western seaboard of Syria. So that's Homs, Aleppo, and then Damascus, which is the political capital. So... This came about because of the so-called Arab Spring. So the Arab Spring began at the end of 2010, early 2011. Young vegetable seller, Mohamed Boussisi, who set light to himself in Tunisia. Young people were so shocked by his method of death, they started to talk on each other on Facebook. This is the first Facebook revolution. I know it's very fashionable to be critical of Facebook at the moment. This shows the use of Facebook. Within a few weeks, the leader had been overthrown. Then it flowed over into Libya. Then it flowed over into Egypt. America's major ally in North Africa was removed in 18 days. So there are 22 Arab states. So you had those three that have removed their leaders. Then we get to Syria. The Syrian regime, the Assad regime, 
decided to dig their heels in and put down the rebellion. So the rebellion started with young, idealistic people. It's gone sour everywhere. You know, we no longer talk about the Arab Spring. It's more like the Arab winter. They've all failed. All of those rebellions have failed. It's the hard people, usually Islamists, who've tried to take over. Or in the case of Libya, it's just basically broken up into different parts of the country. So in the case of Syria, um, the Assad regime decided to use force to put down the rebels. Some of the rebels were pro-Western, inspired by ideas of democracy. Um, but as the chaos continued, so you ended up with other groups like Al-Qaeda and Islamic State exploiting the chaos. So that's one area. That's where the gas warfare has been used, right? That's the Assad protecting his key cities on the western side of the country. If you go to the other side of the country, where it fits in more easily with the Islamic State and Iraq, so in 2003, the US, UK and Australia invade Iraq, the Islamic State then flourishes in the chaos that flows on from that, and the Islamic State then expands over from Iraq into Syria. So that's your second struggle that's on at the moment. So that runs up the, if you like, the eastern, the eastern bit of, of Syria. And then you end up with a third struggle because there are 30 million Kurds in the world. They claim to be the largest indigenous people without their own homeland. So the Kurds are in Iraq, Iran, Syria and eastern Turkey. Right. They are campaigning for their own homeland. So, And it's the Kurds who are supported by the Americans. So if you go back to George Bush Sr., um, he encouraged the Kurds to rebel after the Kuwait war. Uh, they did, but the Americans didn't help them. But they've nonetheless still retained you know, a bit of loyalty for the Americans, even though they keep being betrayed. They're used to being betrayed, right? So... The Kurds then started to fight the Islamic State. Therefore, they get support from the Americans. They are the ones doing the heavy lifting against the Islamic State, and they do a brilliant job. The problem is, if you are sitting in Turkey and you're seeing what's going on over the border, you'd be worried that your own Kurdish minority in eastern Turkey will also then try to rebel. So we now have a third conflict bubbling away. You've got a push by the Kurds in Syria to exploit the chaos which is going over on the western side of the country, they're going to create their own homeland, as they do want to in Iraq as well. Uh, and the Turks have now invaded Syria with a view to putting down that rebellion. So we now have an American ally, Turkey, fighting an American ally in the Kurds. So we now have a dispute within NATO itself now as the United States is uh, confronting Turkey in the interests of protecting the Kurds. So this is in a separate part of the country. So you've got these, I would say, three conflicts bubbling away at the moment. Now, Trump in the election campaign said, look, Syria is so confusing. Let's just get the hell out of there. We don't want to get involved. It's far too complicated. We don't want it to be another Iraq. Let them sort it out. It's not our job. That's why I think some people voted for him in November 2016. The problem is you've got a military-industrial complex in the United States that says, well, we ought to be in Syria. But even in the Obama era, we still don't have a clear idea of what America wants to achieve. Do they want to get rid of the Assad regime? If so, what's going to replace Assad? There's no obvious person to do it, except, of course, for Bashar Assad's mad brother. So we're in a very difficult situation. What are they, what's the American game plan? 
in all of this. This is my problem. And so, you know, the media will focus on the use of gas warfare. Yes, a terrible tragedy. But children and babies are being killed every day for seven years. So we've got to see this in this broader perspective of the amount of suffering which the Syrian people are currently undergoing. And so you think there could be an element of this that is a little bit that could have been made up? Who knows? We just don't know. I would love to have an international inspection. Um, we, we've had it in the past. Um, the last major great use of gas warfare ironically, was in that region. It was October 1988, and uh, it was on the Kurds, and Saddam Hussein used it. And it was an, Australians were part of the inspection team that did checked on the Kurds and the use of gas warfare. So we have an international system that we really ought to be using. Now, what about these claims that the war is pretty much over anyway, Assad has won except for these tiny pockets? Why would the Americans come out now and bother with anything else? Why don't you just get out? Well, that's exactly Trump's point of view. At least it was when he was on the election campaign. And then as soon as he starts talking in those terms, you get, coincidentally, the use of gas warfare. Uh, but Trump, in his campaign, in, in lead up to November 2016, said, we shouldn't get involved in this. Um, and the problem is that you're right when you say Assad has won. He's won on the western seaboard. Those three cities are pretty well secure. But he's still got problems with the Kurds up in the northeast and you've got remnants of the Islamic State. Okay, the Islamic State have lost their territory in both Syria and Iraq, but you've nonetheless still got problems there. He does not have complete control over his own country. And so it goes on. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Keith. Global Truths with Dr. Keith is recorded in studios of Podcast One. Production assistance by Liv Proud. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Producer is me, Kate Mack. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.